already. Don't be afraid. I'm going to give you the choice. I never had. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. It's the greatest of all time, his 55th win in his career. Your winner for the 2016 Billabong Pro Tahiti, Kelly Slater. Holy moly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of the Kill the Messenger podcast. My name is Dave Prodan, and this is a surfing podcast. We're back, and a lot has happened in two weeks. In pod news, Ben Mondi via Grind TV kindly awarded Kill the Messenger with the moniker of top seven surfing podcasts on the planet after only three episodes, so... That was easy. Anyway, while it's humbling to receive an accolade after such a short period of time, and Ben Mondi, as well as his alter ego, Rod... I think it's pronounced Conthorpe, is a brilliant writer, it's important to note that Kill the Messenger really only serves two purposes. First, it's a chance for me to screw around and riff on things that would otherwise just bounce around in my brain. And number two, and optimistically, it may stumble on an idea or unearth a story that someone with more talent and more time may run with, and that, hopefully optimistically again might potentially elevate the discourse in surfing, which I think is important. Uh, With that in mind, It's important to circle back to episode one and give credit where credit is due. If you like long-form surfing conversations, you should definitely check out Down the Line with Scott Bass and Surf Splendor with David Scales, Ain't That Swell News with Jed Smith and Vaughn Blakey, Surf Simply with Asher King, Rue Hill, and Harry Knight, the Awkcast with the immortal Mark Hockalupo, and the WSLB team with Chris Morrow, Milby Shannon, and myself. Additionally, non-surfing pods worth a listen, the Bill Simmons podcast, which is, in my opinion, the gold standard in sports podcasting, Keeping It 1600 with John Favreau and Dan Pfeiffer, and Revisionist History with Malcolm Gladwell. All right, let's get to it. Great episode today, and we are very fortunate to have an in-person guest in Damien Farenfort, as well as our writing guest, Nathaniel Curran. As always, we encourage everyone to write in on whatever platform you find this at, uh, or you can slide into my DMs, which I think that's what it's called, on Instagram at Dave Prodan. Let's get to the news. In the news these last two weeks, Kelly Slater at 44 won his 55th Elite Championship Tour event in Tahiti last week. And he didn't just eke it out either. He crushed people. Uh, You all know this. It doesn't even qualify as news at this point. You may as well just chisel it straight into his continued legend. Uh, in QS news, Evan Geiselman won the Vans Pro at Virginia Beach. Evan's one of those kids who had a ton of hype around him when he was younger, and it was so deserved because he was just unbeatable. Uh, he got a little bit lost when he started surfing on the QS, and then if you recall, he had that horrific head injury and nearly drowned last season at Pipeline. Um, but he is back with a vengeance this year, and the Virginia Beach win pushes him to sixth on the QS rankings, which is within the cutoff point. Across the pond was the Onglet Pro, which was won by Australians Wade Carmichael and Claire Bevilacqua. Wade is so, so strong. He is just like a, a, a nuggety, muscly, natural footer. Um, I've been a big fan of his surfing for a long time and would love to see him on tour. He's gotten close in the past. Bevo is a former CT surfer, and she claimed that she just went out there to cruise around Europe and then won the event. So good work, Claire. Uh, Trestles is obviously coming up, and with it are all the hype edits from the world's best surfers. Connor Coffin put out a particularly impressive 60 seconds at lower Trestles on Surfline clip. Uh, Connor Ribs, I would just love to see him go both ways. This clip is exclusively right-handers. His forehand's amazing. Um, 
you know, I like seeing people go on their backhand too. Bethany Hamilton returns as the Swatch Women's Pro wildcard. Beth nailed a third at Fiji earlier this year as a wildcard, and it will be interesting to see if she can improve upon a 13th where she was a wildcard at Trestles last year. Uh, Beth is joined by Brett Simpson and Tanner Gadowskis as wildcards on the men's side, so should be a really great event. And finally, in the news, last Friday, President Obama secured the largest ecologically protected area on the planet when he expanded the National Marine Monument in Hawaii to more than half a million square miles. It quadrupled the size of the Papaha Nao Moku Aikaya Marine National Monument, covering the northwestern Hawaiian islands. So go Barry, and thank you to listener Erica Rose for bringing that to our attention on the pod. All right, let's get to the juice. Right. Joining me on the juice today is tall South African expat, now residing in Los Angeles, a media mogul, an entrepreneur, and a damn good surfer. Duma Farenfort, welcome to Kill the Messenger. Oh, thank you for having me. Stoked to be here. Sorry it's uh, taken us so long to connect. Oh, no. You're an in-demand person. So Yeah, I like to think that, but it's not the case. That perception's reality, bro. That's it. All right, man. So the juice, which is what segment you're in, it's our bi-weekly segment. And we kind of try to talk about something a little bit substantive and super happy that you're here to talk with us today because you've had a very interesting life, like navigating a pro surf career. And most importantly, and most interesting to me, coming out on the other side with what resembles, at least from the outside, a life plan and purpose. So I think you're a very well-suited vessel to discuss our subject, which is kind of when the music stops. Absolutely. Um, Thanks. So so tell us, Duma, today, what's your day-to-day like? What is your job or many jobs? So I've got three jobs currently. So I recently opened up about a year ago, opened up a store with a friend. It's like a kind of high-end skate surf store. We kind of saw what was going on in like the surf industry and what was happening in surf retail especially. And we thought we could kind of, kind of similar approach to maybe what Outer Known's done with Kelly Slater, where they've tried to like take surfing to like a higher level or like a kind of higher endemic when it comes down to like earning kind of thing and we thought surf brands could sit alongside different contemporary brands really well especially like i don't know and you've got these banks ones and then individual pieces from different brands so we kind of opened the store curating like surf contemporary clothing because now i think the biggest thing is with our access to information kids aren't like only wearing one specific brand anymore they're seeing like what other people are wearing and they're influenced by so many people so like i have to have that billabong pair of board shorts like i was when i was young because there was no internet that's what Oki was wearing and everyone needed it. So we're kind of trying to bridge that gap, kind of get more like higher demand products. And anyway, so that's the passion project. doesn't really pay the bills, but it's really growing and we're doing a lot of events and we have a little coffee shop opening up in three weeks. And then I recently came on to help uh, my buddy, Jordy Smith. Obviously, he's like one of the best servers in the world. And I saw a few little gaps that was missing and he needed to like work on his a few things that was basically stuff he could do himself. But he's got so much going on. He just needs to be able to focus on surfing. And I thought I could really help on the media side and just kind of be that middleman between a lot of things that was just getting swept under the rug or he just was feeling like the pressure was just kind of coming onto him a little bit too much. And then about three years ago, and this is where I kind of learned everything I know today after pro surfing was with Stab Magazine. I came on and I launched it here in the US. And since Sam McIntosh has moved to the States and I've got these two other gigs going on full time, I've kind of stepped back a little bit from it. But I still did day-to-day stuff like a few hours here and there a day and basically like bigger content picture. So we just did the stab in the dark with Dane Reynolds in South Africa where he tests all the boards out. So I was just the production manager on that and I'll kind of see that project from beginning to end. So more like the fun side of it, creating content for them. So to reiterate, entrepreneur, 
talent manager, <laughs> publishing mogul. Those are huge positions for someone that came from pro surfing. Let, let's take it back. Where were you born and how do you pronounce it? I was born in a small town called Komiki in Cape Town. It's K-O-M-M-E-T-J-I-E. So it's like Komichi. People think, think that's how they say it. And it was a really small town. There was like 700 people when I was growing up. I think it was like 350 homes. You could walk from one side to the other in like a matter of minutes. But the, on the other side of it was like we could see Cape Town City where like Camps Bay was just like huge fashion industry models, like a lot of film and then just like kind of the hub. And that was only an hour away. So it's kind of like the best of both worlds. I grew up in the small town with amazing waves and then an hour away was the big city. So I was pretty lucky to grow up where I did. What did your parents do? What were they doing in, in Komeki? Yeah, so when they moved there, our house was just a sand dune, and that's what it was. Like, people were just kind of flattening dunes and then building a place. And my dad was, he just worked in construction. He had, like, a decking company, like timber decks and fences and all that kind of thing. And then my mom, she was repping at the time, I think, for, like, Beacon Suites or something like something weird like that. And they just needed to get out of the city. And I think they wanted to raise kids in an area where we'd be able to walk around. It wasn't dangerous like the city was. So that's kind of where they moved out there. Getting into surfing, I'd imagine, at least I've heard, or Bruce Brown's implied that it's pretty cold. It's freezing. Down, there's big fish. Like, How did you get into surfing when you were there? So I, my dad was a surfer always, and he would always be out. And I think that was like all the fights. Probably why him and my mom ended up getting divorced was his like love for surfing and rocking up late for dinners. I didn't understand him at the time, but I do understand it now. So I, um, so my dad was surfing. I would be at the beach with him, but I wasn't really that into it. And then only once my friends started surfing, all my friends were surfing, I was like, oh, I'm not going to go hang at the beach and not surf, you know? So I just entered a contest one day, and it was when we were like seven years old, and it was basically more just to go hang with all my friends, and I'd maybe stood up on a boogie board once or twice, and it was just our dads pushing us into shore, into like foamies, and I won. Like I, I probably was length of ride. That's probably, I think, how they were scoring. And I was like, finally better than all my friends at something. And even though I probably wasn't, but I won this thing and I beat them. I had one up on them. And I was just, from then, I was like, okay, I need to start surfing full time. I remember when you came on the scene, at least from an American standpoint, the, the comment, because you're a pretty tall athletic dude, was that you could have been a cricketer or anything else. Did, did you play other sports when you were younger or did you just gravitate pretty early towards surfing and I, stuck with that? I played cricket. I'm pretty uncoordinated. My hand-eye coordination is not the best. Clever marketing. That yeah. Way, <laughs> yeah. I did play cricket and I enjoyed it, but it was nothing like surfing. You know, like I eventually got a, I got a pretty good scholarship when I was like, I think, 16 to a good private school in Cape Town. And I kind of did one day then. I was like, no, because I didn't get to surf that day because the drive was like an hour there, an hour back. So I kind of put that on the backbone and everything like surfing does to so many people. They just, their life halts and that's all they want to do. It just consumes them. Seven years old, first contest, you win. Take me from there through the, I guess, the amateur surf scene in South Africa. Who are some of the players that were your contemporaries and how did you kind of matriculate to a place um, both competitively and I guess from a sponsorship standpoint? How did, what, what did those next few years look like? So I, I won that event when I was seven. And after that, I was like, okay, I want to start surfing. And my friends were going every day. And I had like an old hand-me-down board. It wasn't like the kids now have a custom shape board. It was literally like a 6'4". I think I was missing one fin. And that's where we would surf. And the water in Cape Town's freezing. So it's like a kid. The wetsuits then were just like that flat lock where the water just goes straight through. And they were super unflexible. Like they were probably one notch up from wearing a rugby jersey like they did in Bruce Brown's day. So I started surfing then and I got really into it and we would, we would all just like borrow boards from each other and kind of hang on the beach and it really had that like community vibe with the older surfers and the, doing the initiation for kids. And it was a good way. I think my parents really encouraged it and it got me like the right equipment because it was that or I was like hanging out at the house causing trouble. So we were like doing that. 
from then in South Africa, the surf scene was really strong. Durban kind of had the best team. They had like two teams, four nationals, like an A and a B team. Cape Town was kind of second best in line, like provincially. And we went to nationals. And when I went to nationals is when I remember I met Jordy, Josh Redman, and like kind of like all David Weir was there, Travis Logie. They were a bit older, like four to six years, kind of older. But those guys were like the heroes because the Southern surf scene was small that every issue would just be those guys. So every zigzag we looked at was just like these guys. So they're like, I remember David, we were talking to me and I, uh, I was like choked up, you know, <laughs> that's, and that's how I was. And we were eight years old and at this national champs and we were still just seven foamies. So there was no really way to say who was better yet. But after that, Bulumong kicked in and they started a junior series and surfing just like really took off. And we're really starting South Africa and why there's that big gap in talent now was because there was that club-based level. There was each different like town had their own club and there was so much like, effort put into that and events every other weekend. And when you were the best in your club, you could go try out for the SA team and all these different things like to grow. And as soon as that structure disappeared, that's when we kind of surfing went in South Africa lost us like that big gap in the talent. But when you were there, you had the stepping stones and we, you progressed through it. And, and, and how old were you when Billabong picked you up? And so, was that kind of the first major sponsorship? So I got sponsored by, so it's weird, I won nationals not the first year, I served it the next year, and I won under 10, and around that under 10 division, like a year or two later, was actually when I could like start surfing and going sideways, and Geordie won the under 8s, and I won under 10s, and Rosie Hodge actually came third, so I was surfing against a girl, and that was probably the sole driving force, because I didn't want to lose to a girl in the final, because one of my friends had lost him, and he was just crying on the beach. And whether it's Steph or Carissa or Rosie, the sole driving force for so many male surfers is don't lose <laughs> yeah, Isn't that sad? <laughs> I don't know. They rip now. They it's do. pretty obvious. Like, I wouldn't be. Yeah, I wouldn't be too bad. I wouldn't be too bummed losing to Steph. Uh, she's pretty <laughs> phenomenal, and her style, everything's pretty good. But anyway, so after that, the I was I didn't really have a sponsor. I was sponsored by Hot Butter. They were just kind of giving me some clothes. And I remember, I asked Billabong to sponsor me, and I just want SA champs, and I was like. They're going to sponsor me, no doubt. And I met with the people in J-Bay. And I got a letter, like, in the mail probably three weeks later. And I was going to, like, they told me they'd send me a letter, like, to see if I got sponsored or not. And I was going, like, to the post box every single day because Billabong was the elite team to ride for then. It was Billabong and Quicksilver, but more so Billabong. Like, just what they were doing with the kids. And they were, like, they were pairing the older guys with the young kids. So these young guys were getting to go on trips with, like, David Weir and Royden Bryce and these guys at the time were sponsored by Billabong. Anyway, man, the mail came, and it was, like, uh, we regret to inform you, blah, 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 blah. And I just remember being crushed. Like, I just fucking tore it up. And I threw in the burn. It's like, screw them. I'll never ride for Bulawong. I told my dad, I'll never, ever ride for Bulawong. I hate them so much. Two years down the line, they asked me. I was like, yes. <laughs> like, they were like, all right, you want to ride for us? I, Dude, I, I love that they sent a letter. Was there any constructive criticism? Like, are uh, you dropping your forehand? Or no, it was all? it was Jevin LaRue, who was like a top pro surfer at the time, was his dad. And it was like the Bulawong letterhead, and it was typed out, and then he had signed the bottom. But I remember it saying like, you're a bit young, something like along the lines of like, you're a bit young and we have already have like two kids at that age. And I think Geordie might've been one of them and maybe Ricky Besnett was the other and Warwick Wright, but he was a bit older. Um, so I had guys on either side of me. So that was kind of the excuse they used. And, and they could have just give me like two t-shirts and a stick. I would have been thought I was sponsored. Yeah. And then, so, I mean, sponsorship in South Africa didn't really have like the structure it has now, or at least it did in the US where kids were like being courted and that. It was just like kind of, we'll see how he goes. And when he gets to 16, if he's doing all right, we can try to get some dollars from US or kind of anywhere to fund it because they, with the exchange, it was really tough. But Bulawong put in this place a junior series and that became like the first chance where kids could make money and start winning. The first couple of events, you would just win, I think it was like 300 rand to the local surf shop if you won. And that was like kind of your prize money. But eventually the money started coming in. And they started getting sponsors from like companies like Mark Shuttleworth, the guy who's first African that went to the moon. 
his company like invested a bunch of money and all these different areas. So it was all of a sudden a real surf scene and a proper, I guess, routine for the kids to like get into and work towards and kind of structure. Billabong sent me to Australia the following year when I was 14 for the junior series. Once you're on the Billabong program, it's interesting you talk a lot about structure. And then I remember at the time, too, Billabong, whether it was South Africa or Australia, did have a lot of structure both through the junior series and also, I think, kind of matriculating surfers to that next level. Was there a pretty clear career pathway for you? It's like go overseas, get experience, work on the junior series, and then the QS? Was that from the early stages that was the plan? Yeah, you know, I wish I had – one of the things I do wish I'd done is I'd not gone to the QS so soon. I wish I'd said on the junior series, give myself a bit more time to like surf and mature my surfing. But it was kind of that like, as that junior series ended when you were like 80, I think it was 18 or 20 then, um, you kind of had to do the jump. Where now you see kids like Mikey Wright, they're not in a rush. They're like taking their time. They're, they can qualify when they're 24, 25. Because you end up getting a bit like burned out after like six years of junior series and then straight into that. Well, I think it, it was 20 and I think it got knocked back to 18. And, and I understand, I guess I understand why they did it, but I also understand why you wouldn't do it because... Like, some kids don't actually physically mature until they're, like, 23, 24. And if you're, even at the time, if you're 20, 21, and now if you're, like, 19, 20, you're basically being thrown to the wolves on the QS. Huge, hugely. And, like, you get the rare one where, like, Kanoa Garashi and these guys qualify young, Jeremy, Jordy. But a lot of these kids, they're way too young still. They're still underdeveloped. It's like seeing college football players versus NFL football players. Like, the difference is just so vast. So... Billabong had this really good structure, and they had these houses in Hawaii, and at the time they had like houses in Oz, and basically it'd be this international hodgepodge of their different surfers would be able to stay there and create these like kind of camaraderies and friendships that like I still speak to the guys on a weekly basis today. And that kind of set us up to really perform. Unfortunately, what happened in South Africa though with Billabong, there was a, the pie wasn't either this big, and they kind of paired us up against each other, and Geordie wasn't quite like. We didn't realize he was as good then as he, like, you know, it only hit when he was like 17, 18, when people were like, okay, this guy's the next level. But we were all very competitive. Like, we still thought we were as good as him, if not better. Sure. But me and Ricky, Warwick, and Jordy were all kind of getting like pinned against each other. And if we'd lost in a comp, we wouldn't get money for the next event. And what it started doing is it started making us like kind of hope each other loses. Yeah. And then like, if Jordy made the quarters and I just made the semis, then I'd be like, okay, fine, I'm done. Like, I don't care if I win now, as long as I get further than these guys. And they kind of paired us up against each other. And it wasn't intentional. It was just because of the situation. Yeah. There was enough to go around. And there were so many good surfers coming out of South Africa at that time that, it, like, unfortunately, just couldn't, wasn't sustainable. It's interesting you say that everyone was really competitive and then sort of at 17, 18, Jordy broke away. I was talking to uh, Luis Campos Pinga yeah. from, from Brazil, and he, he had a similar situation because he kind of was the premier scout in Brazil. And, you know, he found Jadson and Adriano and, and Italo and Jesse Mendez, et cetera. And I said, well, how'd you miss Gabriel? And he goes, well, no one missed him. But he just kind of came out of nowhere. Like, he, he was sort of a Volcom guy, was okay, lost his sponsorship. And, you know, Jesse and Italo and those guys used to regularly beat him yeah. badly. And then when he lost his sponsorship and they went with Rip Curl, it just something switched. And he came out and just the rest is history so interesting because people sponsor kids younger and younger and it's like you don't know what you're going to get until the huge kids, like late teens sometimes early 20s it's it's out of control like these guys especially now worse than ever is because everyone's trying to jump on the next like train and who's going to save our brand and that's kind of like the future but geordie geordie was making like twenty thousand dollars like his dad was like selling stuff to get him to events and that kind of thing maybe making 20 grand when he was 16 mm-hmm. now he would have been making like around a million and a half of what he's what he was doing and the way he was surfing but I remember he was either like Later on in his 16th, but just before his 17th birthday, oh, he was 17 already. 
But he rode this, we went surfing the one day and he had this surf and everyone, like all the best surfers in Durban were out, like Davey Wee and all these guys. And it was right when air reverses were coming in and he just took off like on this wave and just did this huge air reverse. And everyone was like, whoa. And he just strained another turn and then strained another air reverse. And I'd never seen it done twice on a wave. I remember that like, after that surf and the way how he was doing these supermans and he was going crazy, just thinking like, well, this guy's way better than all of us. Like mm. being slightly like, Oh, I kind of accepting my defeat. <laughs> like I'm never going to be able to be competitive with this guy anymore. That's that's a good segue. So, would you say that the highlight of your competitive career was 2005 trials win CT at J Bay? Yeah, I think it was like 2005, 2006, and 2007. Look at that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It was three or four years. Though. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it was definitely actually because those Belong trials were pretty stacked, and it was like. Luke Dorrington at the time, the Wade Goodalls, Geordie was in there, kind of like they'd sent all their juniors down. Yeah. And I managed to win that three separate times. So it was pretty special. So, and I think on the other side of that, though, it was like really special, but I ended up thinking I was a lot, maybe better than I actually was. And then surfing against Kelly and Tarjin's guys and just getting absolutely comboed. Like both times I made round three, or all the times I made round three. You beat CJ Hargood, he's a world champion. Yeah, I beat mean, CJ. Yeah, I remember I rode, I rode those coattails for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I want to talk about that mentality, right? I don't know if the, the timeline's congruent, but so you're coming up, you're doing the QS, you feel like you're doing it a little too early. You're seeing the comparison between Jordy and yourself. You're thinking Jordy's probably got an edge on me. You're also getting into these CTs and mixing it up with the world's best surfers. At the time, are you still going like, at some point I'm going to crack the QS and make the CT? When you're getting those wild cards into the event, was that still a goal? For sure, yeah. Up until probably 22, I was like, I'd already done like four years solid on the QS. Like yeah. I'm making it, I'm making it. And I had like a couple of like big results. The QS was a lot different to what it is now. But I had like one or two quarters, one or two semis, but I hadn't quite cracked it. And then I was getting a lot of like first rounds here and there. And I remember like they were just, cause there were so many events back to back then. And we were just going to Brazil, like four in Brazil in a row, you know, and like wouldn't be above knee high for like two weeks straight. And I was a bigger guy and the boards weren't quite as fine-tuned then. I was just riding a shortboard. Like, we were, there were no fishes. Dan Reynolds hadn't made the dumpster diver popular yet. And just losing and, like, really struggling. And I would have spent three grand to get to Brazil. And then my buddies on Bali, like, getting pumping stand-up barrels or on some boat trip. And then I was like, "This, I don't know if this is the best use of my money. And I'd kind of – so, rewind a little bit. My results weren't always the best coming up. Like, I had some good ones and a couple good wins and, like, big events. And generally, when the waves are better – but I always, from a young age, I've probably got the most coverage out of any upcoming kid in South Africa. Like, I'm still the youngest person to have the zigzag cover. I've had, like, six of them. And I was just really fortunate. One of my friends at the time, Adam Van Case, and he's an amazing photographer. We became friends, and he just happened to become, like, one of the best water photographers in the world. So we were t- together every day. So I was getting all this media coverage, and it was really helping me. And that kind of, like, what always substituted my bad results for that. And then the QS kicked in, and I wasn't getting coverage, and I was getting bad results. Mm. I was like, well, it's not such a, like, healthy combo. And right around that time was when I moved to the U.S. And uh, I got sponsored by Rusty after I moved to the U.S. I left Billabong. And they were like, we've got a million guys doing the Q.S. Like, why don't you just go surf f- pumping waves? And I had that up. It was the first time I had this opportunity to be a free surfer. And I was just like, whoa, I wish. And that's where I had wished I hadn't gone to the Q.S. so early. I had done like two years and then gone to the Q.S. Because what happened after those two years of doing the Q.S., I started doing a few more events. And I started doing better in them and actually enjoying events. Like, not going out in the heat thinking what what is my excuse going to be if I lose like actually okay I just need a four I can get it or like these ways are fun or actually like thoroughly enjoying competitive surfing do you feel like 
that opportunity that Rusty gave you once you moved stateside to free surf and travel the world, do you feel like your surfing matured in that time period? And when you kind of came back and did the odd QS, you felt stronger? Huge amount. Yeah, like I got probably the best results I'd ever gotten. I did a few in like El Salvador and a few. And I, all of a sudden, I started getting really good at surfing small waves too. Was it a mentality thing or mostly just like a like a surfing maturation thing? I think maybe mentality. I'd kind of like, because it wasn't my sole focus anymore, I kind of took a bit of the pressure off me. And I was there for more of the experience and enjoying the event and seeing all my friends I hadn't seen in a while. Then I was for like, got to get, get, got to, got to get past this guy in this heat. I got to make it to this and, and took the comp, maybe like taking that competitive edge off a little bit really helped me. Yeah. And then, so you go from almost exclusively competitive guy at Billabong. Yeah. Coming to the US, you go to Rusty, you become their free surf guy, you start doing better in QS events. What's the next step? Did you did you think that I'm gonna to put together a qualifying campaign or were you like, you know what, the free surf thing's working for me, I'm gonna move into that? So I had a bit of a plan. I was like, let me do a few events in the beginning of the year, like start off in Hawaii, do the events and see how I go. And if it starts going well, make a proper run. And if, if I'm like a third of the way through the year and I've got like one big result, I can make a run at this. Like I could, then I'll actually dedicate it. If not, I kind of need to start figuring out what I was going to do. But I'd had like two really good years with Rusty and I'd got a lot of coverage and I was really lucky in the US to have like moved over here with Jordy because it kind of like rolled out the red carpet, just like falling behind him. And I got to meet all these amazing people and he really helped me get on that rusty team because o'neill was owned by the same company we we probably didn't have like a real exotic super talented south african export in america for a long time yeah i'd imagine i'm trying to think who the previous generation would have been i mean there are certainly guys like you know emsley and davy and that but i don't think any of them really focused on the u.s market too much no not at all and because they've kind of done really well at home and that had like pro- such promising junior crew so they didn't need to and the internet wasn't around then yet so like they could afford to like be in different places and the, get coverage in the magazines because they were structured trips. It wasn't so like you had to be on point every other week. But uh, so I got sponsored by Rusty and I had two really good years with them. And then they were going to make some big decisions and they were going to give me like a lot more money, like kind of my own little clothing line. I had like that Doomers Rumors blog going on and was getting a fair bit of coverage and a bit of controversy. And they were really stoked. But around the same time, I was in New York for the New York Pro. And I met the Quicksilver, the whole Quicksilver marketing team. And they liked that I was creating content and kind of just making stories out of not much. And they said to me, hey, we should talk about like maybe you're coming on and working for us. I was like, that's cool. But it was kind of one of those drunken conversations. And I never expected anyone to follow up, like just like high five bro kind of style. Anyway, a few months later, they hit me up to, this was coming around like October time, let's have a meeting. And they were planning on like restructuring and kind of bringing a new films department at the time. And I met the marketing department there and they offered me a job. And... And at the same time, Rusty offered me this big deal, but the deal with Rusty was they were going to cut a few of my friends that were running for them at the time too. So they were like, oh, we'll, we'll just cut his pay. And I was like, well, like if I can do this opportunity here, like maybe I'd rather, I don't want to take in, like my friend just had a kid mm-hmm. and they were like, we'll just cut his pay or like we'll just cut him completely. I was like, no, but he's done you know, with you guys forever. Like I didn't, it didn't sit too well with me mm-hmm. how quickly they were just willing to cut someone just because I'd been hot for like two years or doing well or part of the new plan. And at the same time, I was kind of questioning. I was like 20, probably 25, and I was trying to question. I was trying to question, like, okay, what am I going to do next? Like, I don't really have, like, I'm not going to make a lot of money off surfing. There's kind of surfing's like Brazil, where the rich are rich, the poor are poor, mm-hmm. and I'm always going to be in that poor bracket. And I'm just kind of not teaching myself any new skills. And I was hitting a bit of a wall. Like, I read a lot and I was writing a bit, but it was nothing like substantial. I was like, I need to go learn a skill, and that's what that quicksilver opportunity was. So I jumped on that. And I remember having like the first three or four months of 
my employment, I was like having like sleepless nights. Like, did I make the wrong decision? Yeah. And miss, like the first time in my life, I had to be somewhere on time, and I, regardless of how good the waves were. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's an amazing story because you basically gave up a, a lucrative pro surf extension. Yeah. Um, to to learn a skill, and it's cool that part of that was, I guess you know, a moral reason to help out guys that you were close with. That's really cool. But man, I don't know too many, if any of the guys in the industry are willing to turn their back on the pro surf guy. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's it. It's like, and I mean, like he, I was like, I wasn't making a fortune, but 65 to a hundred grand kind of a year with like bonuses and that, but like to do nothing. Yeah. To go surf. Wake up and go surf. And I had this cool travel budget and that, so I didn't even have to dip into my savings for that. And this Quicksilver gig, I really liked what the guys were trying to do. And it's such a bummer that, the initial plan never ended up following through because, you know, the, the recession it wasn't actually the recession hit, but it kind of hit Quicksilver a few years later. And it was, it was the first time I remember like my th- second or third week of work, I saw someone get laid off. And I'd written a story a few years back previously or two years previously about Hurley getting bought by Nike or Nike selling. I can't remember what it was. It might have been before or after. And I'm pretty sure I read it. I'm pretty sure it was like a fly on the wall version of the announcement with the Nike team. It was. And, and someone storming out, being upset. Yeah. And Bob Hurley, like, basically sent an email around the company, like, don't listen to the C level pro surfers, like, bullshit. Like, well, everyone's jobs are secure. <laughs> because it was just, like, turned into a frenzy. And Bob actually called me out on it once before. And I didn't understand him. I kind of was, like, a bit of a dick back. And I pushed back a little bit, like, mate, you need to have more security in your company than if you're worried about my little blog causing this kind of damage. But it wasn't until I worked at Quicksilver that I understood, like, the severity of it and people's lives in the line and I saw someone get laid off. They'd been with the company for 20 years and I was like, oh shit, okay, this is what real life looks like. So you're at Quicksilver, you cut your teeth in the marketing gig. What was your role when you were there? So I was meant to be, I came on initially to be digital content curator and like kind of start a films department and start like really helping the online, like the content side of it. Because up until then it'd been like team trips for magazines and there wasn't really like, they were never done a trip where it was purely for online. Like, it was always like, I'll come in the magazine, then we might run a few photos for the blog. But we're going to start creating, like, proper films and that. And once I started there, like, any job, it's the opposite of what you think it's going to be. You start, like, realizing there's all this red tape. And I'd never worked for a corporate company before, so I didn't understand how much red tape there was, how this insane idea, we'd have this insane idea just get so watered down as it goes through the different levels and the different um, departments. And I started figuring out, like, there's just too many chiefs, not enough Indians. And so what I did is the next two years, I just was in like every marketing meeting I could be in, like whether it was a pack sun, I would just sort of fly on the wall and try to just observe as much as I can and pick people's brains. And at the same time, they were like going through that weird phase too within their identity. Like pack sun was saying, well, Kelly's too old now. And they're like, and that's when Andy Mooney was coming in. He's like, we don't need Kelly. We just need Dane. And that's like around that time when Kelly had heard that. And so I was seeing all these different things. And I started learning a lot about like what's going on beyond surfing. And why surfing isn't appealing to the mass audience anymore. And that really fascinated me. So that kind of was the evolution of that. There's an interesting thing in surfing too, that at least as far as the industry is concerned, I feel like they want to pay for potential instead of achievement. It's almost like for some people, it feels that at times the industry thinks you're more valuable before you win your world title. And then once you've won it, you're like, eh, who's the next kid? I completely agree. And it shouldn't be like that. Like I almost wish it would become like like the football is. Like only once you qualify, then they can bid, bid on you. You know, you kind of get your travel paid and it's like a kind of a fund that helps everyone and you survive. But only once then you start making like the real cash. Yeah. I mean, but you can look at the other sports too. It's like the achievements when the money comes in. You know, you win an NBA title and you, you money yeah. sounds good. 
Well, the problem is there's also like no accountability in surfing. Like you're just out there. There's no way to now they've started to figure out more, but especially then there was no way to quantify what someone's worth was. Like you almost needed to audit the guys, you know, because they were just getting away with doing the bare minimum. Yeah, I mean, I think they they benefited from like an upward trend for so long. For that sure, it just became kind of a proliferation where like, well, company X has done this, so we're going to do X plus this, and then they go, well, company Y has done this, so we're going to do this plus that, which is great for. I guess surfers and fans and consumers, but then, as you said, when the GFC hit and there becomes accountability, people are like, "Where did you get these figures from? Where did this number come from?" And you, they're just going, "Oh, well, we were just trying to outdo those guys." Exactly, and that's all. It became like a competition. So transition from Quicksilver, how did that come to an end? And- so I was working at Quicksilver, and it'd been like two years, and I was starting to get pretty frustrated. I just there was no freedom in the framework. Everything I was doing was getting shut down. I'd organize these big trips the day before. They'd cancel the budgets. And just to interrupt too, sorry, sorry the, you're not doing any QS events at this time. You, you'd sort of mentally given that up and you're like, I'm learning a new skill. I'm going to yeah. make it on this side of the industry. I wasn't really doing any QSs, but I was still doing a couple of photo trips. Like yeah. Part of my Quicksilver thing was a bit of sponsorship too. So I was still surfing. But um, so I was at Quicksilver. I was getting a bit frustrated. I was on the Gold Coast for the Quick Pro actually and I was doing commentating. Anyway, one morning I was at breakfast early and I bumped into this Tom Bird. He was one of the owners of Stab. But I'd met him once briefly, but not quickly. I actually didn't know that he worked at Stab, and he was kind of asked me what I was going to do next. And I had seen how what a high demand there was for content was like starting to happen. It was like five years ago now, or you know, four and a half, five years ago now. And I was going to go start an agency. I was going to hire this kid. We we're going to go buy Red. It was like right before Red cameras kicked off. Take a loan, buy Red. We we're going to start our own film production agency and start creating content. And I had a bit of a plan going. And I was just talking to Tom about this one morning at breakfast. He was down, and then he was like, asked me what I was wanted to do and i was really started thinking about quitting it quick and or like trying to transition yeah. transition out of it that's it and uh he phoned me like he got my number from someone and 20 minutes later he's like can you have dinner with us tonight and i was like yeah what's it about he's like oh i work for stab so i met with him and sam mcintosh that night and what they had seen is all of a sudden the audience in the u.s was got bigger than australia because they'd kind of like grown as much as they could in oz and they started seeing the potential from here but they weren't bringing any revenue it was no revenue was come from the u.s so I came on to help launch like Stab in the USA and they spent a bit of time out here. And probably in those two years with them, I learned more than I've learned in the rest of my life combined. Like Pretty with sales. Guess. And I was sitting with like every surf brand and learning their marketing plan. Yeah. Because so everyone would like kind of pitch us on the different like things to do. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's an interesting thing to have a look back at hindsight when the media model in surfing was exclusively print. So there was nothing international. Yeah. Like I got my South Africa media plan. I got my Australia media plan. I got my U.S. media plan. And then when the digital age hit, um, you know, StabMag early on, like, had a really arresting aesthetic digitally. Huge, yeah. And, and they're also, I felt like, investing in journalism, editorial, obviously had a little bit of an irreverent tone that I think clicked with the everyone. And as soon as people in the U.S. caught on to it, it didn't matter if they're based out of Australia. People are still looking into it so it's interesting how you know there's not really a regional sales plan anymore when it comes to surf media no big time and that's like i'm the problem now because there's no regional sales plan when it comes to surf media anymore but there's still regional marketing initiatives and like and different products mm-hmm. so like they they're still only promoting wetsuits and wetsuits in winter time but they don't like but their board short sales might be higher in winter than they were in summer because everyone's still targeting trips and going around like that and really now i feel like the fashion brands have a pretty pre-dialed they just drop stuff whenever like it's coming mm-hmm. it's not like it's such a set formula anymore and i think that's where surfing's starting to struggle mm-hmm. because last winter didn't get very cold so no one bought four threes yeah and you it, need to you need to be able to like instead of basing so much on one on the weather or whatever it is or surf be a bit more like 
flexible or be able to adjust a little bit more to what's actually happening in the world, the conditions. It's amazing when you think about how much rides on the weather, not just in surfing, but snow too. You know, if there's a bad snow season, the snow industry in the U.S. is on life support, right? I always think of it with events too. It's like, holy moly, so much is going into this forecast. It is amazing how much runs on the weather. It is, and that's a whole like industry. It's just like weather-based and... It's kind of what makes surfing so special too because it's like no two waves are ever the same. You don't know when it's going to happen and that's kind of the charm of it, but it's also the downside of it too, you know? So you take the gig with Stab. Yeah. Become, what, the publisher in the U.S.? So I was probably a yeah, publisher in the U.S., but I was doing ad sales. Like if a video broke and someone sent it to me, I'd literally pull over on the, at the Starbucks and quickly post it and then keep driving. So I was doing like content, uh, selling ads, and then just working with the team on like different projects like bigger projects actually you know what i did for a while i was able to cross over so i went to quicksilver i said guys i'm leaving i'm gonna do stab and they were like don't leave um take a few months off we're trying to transition we like we're busy cutting the fat we're gonna hire a whole new staff like you can stay doing both for a while mm-hmm. they were like as long as it's cool stab so i kind of told the stab guys as well they were, they were like hey fine by us it kind of helps us alleviate the salary a little bit more from sure. like a full-time guy and like i basically for like six months seven months didn't go into Quicksilver offices. And they were kept saying, all right, like, we got this plan that's coming and then we get pushed back. I'd have a meeting here and there and like a couple of small ideas, but it was really minimal. And then on the Quicksilver Pro, when in France, when I got kicked off the webcast, that was kind of like my last straw. I was like, all right. I vaguely recall this. Now. Yeah. So I got me and Snake. Yeah. I'll, I'm going to say guilty by association. <laughs> um, yeah. You just got dragged down the wormhole. That's it. And I understood it now, like afterwards, like what was going on at the time. And I think it was when the when the new uh, company was looking at the WSL to buy the ASP then, and they were like, I got it. Like, they don't a bunch of bums talking about beers and betting on the webcast. And anyway, so that happened. And I kind of used that as the last straw to get, like, to leave Quicksilver and start Stab full-time. Having that overlap's a pretty good gig, though, if you're the digital content it was manager insane. at Quicksilver and the U.S. publisher for Stab. That's really nice. And it tied in really good for Quicksilver at the time because we started doing trips that I was doing. It was just a media sponsor tied in without having to spend any additional funds. Yeah. You know, so I was going along. I was running the story. I was producing the content. And then it was getting distributed to the right sources, too. So that was kind of like the tie-in, too. And I think that's where they saw a bit of the charm. So you shift full-time to Stab. You move to L.A. You you, I'm guessing you didn't just get interested in fashion, but probably cultivated a pre-existing interest. Yeah, so I was like, I feel like guys are have a pretty, pretty easy like fashion sense where if they feel good in something, that's all they wear. Mm. Like you know, if a guy gets a compliment in a pair of blue jeans, a white tee, and white shoes, he's gonna that's gonna become yeah. his outfit yeah. from a hot seven girl. of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like very up, like the color of the the slight tint in the denim a little yeah. bit, but not much. So actually, not until I really started stab, I always just like kind of wore my surf clothes. I, was, I never really understood the surfers that got paid a lot of money and wore other clothes. So I was like, so I was always pretty dedicated to my sponsors and a few little vintage pieces here and there. But um, I was started stab and Sam and a lot more fashion oriented because they started in Bondi, you know, mm. which is essentially like the Venice Beach of of uh, Australia. So they just used to tease me nonstop about my clothes, like because you know the Australian and South African culture is very like kind of the more the worse you treat a friend it's like a term of endearment the more fun you make of a friend and those are the kind of people that you can really trust and build strong relationships with anyway they would just tease me like nonsense about my they always call it shit kit like kit <laughs> clothing they call kit sure, yeah. they'd be like oh he's got the worst kit anyway so i started like and then i wasn't sponsored anymore, i wasn't tied to a brand so i was able to start like spending money and buying if i like something i'd in a different pair of jeans a pair of levi's i'd buy it or i'd buy this or shoes i always had a bit of a shoe addiction 
But um, you and Jordy. Yeah, Jordy is another level. He's got the funds to really, <laughs> to really support <laughs> to really the addiction. Those funds. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so that's kind of how. That, but I was going. I wasn't shopping in Venice. I'd go like downtown to like Union and these different stores to buy stuff. And at around that time, I become friends with a sovereign guy who just sold his business. And we never really met before, but we got connected here and we became good friends. And we were complaining about like, hey, there's nowhere to buy cool men's clothing in Venice. Like, Deus was kind of. They had already peaked, kind of, and then you had all, like, the douchebag motorbike guys wearing the Deus caps, so it wasn't that cool to wear anymore. And get my partner now at the store, he went to Japan. He came back. He's like, we got to do something, like, in Japan, what they do, the attention to detail, like, integrating the community. And Venice was going through a huge gentrification war at the time, too. It was, like, four years ago, and it still is now. But the old Venice hated the new Venice, and the new Venice hated the old Venice. And... Because of surfing, I was subject to the old Venice. I had some good friends, like some OG guys. And then I was also partying and going to these cool house parties and that and meeting all the new people. So there were, I noticed there was like really good people on both sides of the fence. And it was more the developers that were causing like the mayhem that were just like, that was, that's what really what gentrification is. You can't blame someone for wanting to move to a beautiful area and have their family there. That's just like the, that happens everywhere in the world and it will continue to happen. Anyway, so we wanted to create this community store that kind of bridged that gap between old and new Venice. And that's kind of where general admission came from. It's kind of just like for anyone, but it had the attributes like that. Apply, like, unfortunately rent's expensive in Venice. So we got to sell clothes. We can't sell $20 t-shirts. We've got to sell hundred dollar t-shirts, pay our bills and be able to have that mix of the, like the OG stuff, like Hetra in Venice, which is a little like local surfer dude. He makes these tees. So we support him and the local surfboard shapers. But then we have that elevated product that can kind of fund and, pay all the bills that we need to and the response has been really positive yeah it's been insane so we've been really lucky like we have a lot of events and the community's really come together um and supported us and without them like without the new venice supporting us we wouldn't be able to like still be in business and be able to keep reinvesting in the business and reinvest in old venice and give them the opportunity to like showcase their products with little like pop-ups events or whatever so we've focused on events and that's kind of what has always been a big thing of mine is especially with technology now and the internet everyone's just on their phone the whole time and i'm guilty of it too but I really wanted to bring people together or we really wanted to bring people together and I feel like events is the last place where like people kind of have their phones and if the vibe's right, if you can kind of get that right mood, you, you can get people off their phones and, and integrating and talking and that's kind of, we had this one event early on and it was like OG thugs, like I'm talking like gangster thugs that spent time in jail playing bocce ball or this, whatever it is, cornhole with like these new like preppy like tech nerds startup tech nerds yeah and i remember thinking then i was like that was what we were trying to achieve and create and we've tried to replicate that with all our events let's go full circle let's get back to the third hat you're friends with jordy for a long time he you know clearly looks up to you as a fashion icon (laughs) i hope not how do you approach him and say i can help you out so or does he approach you so i we had spoken about in the past like his dad always like proposition me to like come on and run his affairs and, and i was always like i was a bit hesitant to do it because you know once you start business and pleasure or like friendship and business you know things can get pretty complicated but by that stage i'd had enough experience in business and i'd been subject to like the media side and what, and then now the business side of it where i was able to like okay george let's talk business like friendship aside what happens here stays here so anyway i had a bit of time then because i was kind of transitioning out of stab i was doing a bit more general mission but it still wasn't that busy yet mm. So at the beginning of this year, I kind of said to George, hey, we've spoken about this before. I've got a bit of time. Here's like what I think you're missing, what I think you need to do. You've got two years coming up on your deals. What is deals up in two years? I was like, let me write a solid media plan to help you 
kind of hit all these goals and have your image in the right place so you're not completely re- reliant on your results because at that stage he had, hadn't been having such a good career. A few issues. Yeah, it had a bad so. few years. Yeah, injuries and just like, you know, he got married and going through a different phase of his life. And he went, cool, let's do it. Like, let's give it a go. There's so many guys like Jordy who, who are obviously uber talents and there's so many people around them, you know, and it seems like for years and years he's going through to coaches or management and starts a website and starts a film thing and wants to do this. And it, it, because the media landscape and probably the industry landscape changed so violently, like over the course of his career once he hit the CT, it must be hard to find a level kind of now, right? Well, that was his hardest part. He was like, he wanted to be world champ so bad and he's one of the most competitive people I've ever met. But then he also wanted to do what John John was doing, it being like making a film. And he was getting so torn between that and he ended up like, you know, would see this footage of him that he would show me that was like mind-boggling. And people would, his results were bad at the time and people were like, oh, Geordie's surfing shit and you would start seeing like, you know, and that starts weighing on him too because he's reading the comments and he's just losing to like surfers that are a level below him. And I was like, what's all this going on with all this footage? Like, let's just get it out there. Let's start like producing this content. He's like, oh, I want to make a film. I said, but why? You got to choose. Why exactly? Yeah. Like, it's not, it's not 1995 anymore where no. Taylor Steele sells a million copies of his yeah, film. People are making money. Yeah. And I'd seen at Quicksilver, they did, Craig Anderson did a slow dance and there was like 2,000 downloads of it. You know, yeah. like, and that 200 like grand. a year of both his and Yeah, probably Dane's two time, years. Right? Yeah. For sure. And I was like, all right, so this is the reality of it. And I was seeing the viewership we were getting online on videos and that kind of thing with, and, if you activate them properly and there's enough behind it, you can get two or two hundred, three hundred thousand people can watch a film clip of you. This amazing thinking of him, like I want to say it was '08 was the bidding year when he left Billabong and smashed the QS. He did like a couple of high-profile Taylor films, yep. and and had that big bidding war. Right? It's amazing seeing like how much better he was than everyone, and he was maybe one of the last guys that people presumed when he qualified could like be top five or world title contender first year and then how good everyone gets like over the course of a few years and and it's not that you forget about Jordy, but but he gets a few injuries and he has a few bad years or he has footage that he's sort of kept in the vault a la prince um and all these other guys are, are sort of populating the media landscape and then all of a sudden he goes out and smashes an event or releases like some footage that he's been sitting on you remember like holy crap this guy is like he is a title contender still. It's hard. It's amazing that the landscape is such that you can forget about someone like that. It's incredible. Like, I just look at, I mean, it's so sad, like Owen. Mm-hmm. You know, like, everyone stop talking about Owen. Like, hey, the guy's like, he'll be back. He's going to rip or whatever. Like, gone for a few months and it's just like that. Yeah. Because you have, like, a new Philippe Toledo. Like, look what Italo did his first year. Yeah. Just came on. All of a sudden, kids are like, oh, this guy's my pro surfer, my favorite surfer because he went mad in a few events. And with the CTs, you know, the internet now, there's so much content being produced. You can create some amazing clip and it can be pushed down pretty quickly. And there's all this noise around it, but it's, it's so easy to miss it. But these events, there's so much, there's so much, I don't know what would the right word be, but like, there's so much riding on each heat. You only got 30 minutes. Mm. So if you go in that 30 minutes and you go like crazy and like Felipe dropping a 10 and 9.5 in his final in Brazil, like, it's just going to get regurgitated for the, until the next event. It's going to be spoken about so much more. And there's so much like, in, uh, what's it called? Like, uh, a just almost like notoriety on, on contest surfing. Yeah. But you've got so much that goes into it where you only got 30 minutes or 35 minutes, 20 minutes can be no waves. And you get two waves that you have to surf for a five and everyone thinks you're surfing shitty. And, and you're right. You know, like the, the end of the day, the ocean is in charge. And we talk about that a lot. It's like, 
that swagger that you see in a basketball or football or baseball. It's like someone can train and be physically better, right? Like For LeBron sure. James can go like, I spent $1.5 million a year of my own money on my body. I know I'm an elite physical specimen. I know that the basketball court is the same size and the basketball hoop is 10 feet off the ground. And I know that I'm physically better than these guys and I can go out there and with swagger. Yep. It's like, if you have that same person in surfing, they're like, I don't know, I might not get the waves. So there's that, that innate humility already. Yeah. And now that's happening. And you're seeing that on the other side, on the sponsorship level too. Like I'd have spoken to a Hurley person towards the end of last year and the heads of Nike, because they see this huge chunk of their marketing budget going every month to John. Mm. And they're like, why isn't he winning? And they're like, well, he's been a bit unlucky. He's had a few, but they're like, but Roger Federer places first, second or third every mm. tournament. And so does Raphael and this football player and this. And all of a sudden you're going to come on this golfer or whatever it is because it's that even playing field. But John, who's this, like insane talent, he's just struggling. It's not quite clicking. And all of a sudden he's getting questioned and that just like builds up, you know, and, and there's that, that's the real world pressure. And as surfers earn more money, there's going to be more of that kind of, uh, expectation to perform let's bring it back to jordy he's after tahiti fifth in the world now yeah it's been an interesting title year to say the least yeah would you say that he's going to try to make a late run at the top of the rankings or is he building confidence for a serious run in 2017 you know i think realistically just like an honest conversation i had with him you know he'd really like to win lowers again and it would probably put him into a position to make a run but it's he's still fairly far behind like you look at John, Gabriel, and think they've got already got three or four solid results. Sure. Well, he's got one, yeah, one kind of keeper, and then a bunch of run. Like he's been really lucky the way the years unfolded the way it has, because he would probably normally in this position he'd probably be more like around tenth, eleventh position, sure. and he knows that. So I think it's more building for next year and making a proper run. He you knows he's done some good stuff with Chris Gallagher, and he's learnt like things that he didn't even know he could keep learning in surfing, like technique and where to place. Like. Everyone keeps talking about his backhand being the best it's ever been. Mm-hmm. And that's something that was always let him down in a huge amount. Like he just, he had this phenomenal forehand, but then his backhand was, not that it was bad, but it yeah. was, wasn't was like Dan Reynolds where it was as good as his forehand to co- really complete him. Right. I mean, he can win at J-Bay, obviously, wins in Rio, wins yeah. in Trestles. I think you're right. Probably the criticism that people level at him is, you know, Fiji, Tahiti, Pipe, maybe. Yeah. He hasn't, I mean, it's, it's for, for me, at least watching, it's never been a um, commitment thing. I mean, he commits. He just had that unfortunate stuff go down at, at back door where he got hurt that one year and then had his bell rung pretty good at Tahiti 2014. Yeah. So I like spoke to him about this too and he's like not afraid and his the, the unique thing that Geordie can do and I see John John and like Dane when I've surfed with these guys they can do it too is they look at what someone else is doing and they know they're a better surfer than that guy and they're like if he can do it I can do it and they can do it right away. So what's happened with Geordie is he goes out at pipe in the evening and it's 100 guys out he'll end up getting one of the best waves that evening with a, like a huge barrel because he's able to position himself with the crowd. Yeah, and he's physically very, he's that, a paddler. And, that's it. And he's paddling, and he's strong, and he's not afraid because he's so big. But what happens in a heat, all of a sudden, he's left to kind of create his own uh, like playing field where he's going to sit, where he's going to line himself. And he hasn't done that homework or put in that extra time there. Yeah, and that's it, where he falls short. That is amazing because, I mean, we I serve personally like in crowds a lot and it's crazy when you go out and surf with no one because you realize how much you rely on other people and their cues to, Absolutely. to set up like oh there's wave coming or i need to move to inside of that person to get the wave and then when you surf by yourself you're like oh i don't even really know where to sit yeah you end up missing waves and out of position or what keeps happening for him is he's on the shoulder too much on the shoulder mm. and he's not deep enough so he's like charging these big waves but like he's only getting a three because it wasn't deep enough you know yeah 
But if it was someone in that crowd or even the other server hadn't caught a wave yet and they were up here, he would, you know, he would have got, it's like the difference between like a three and a 10. Yeah. Well, man, I think he's, he's super fortunate to have someone like you augmenting his team yeah. in, in his corner. And, and man, I, I learned things this conversation. I didn't know about you. I, I'd put it up there our most impressive performance for post legitimate Thanks, career um, in terms of what you've been trying to do, man. So thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Hopefully one of these days it ticks off yeah. <laughs> that can afford a home in Venice. Yeah. Well, you know, that's good to have goals. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. And it's been like the biggest thing is I keep learning something new. And I guess that's why I want to keep trying to create different little brands. And I feel like now I'm in a position with on a business side of something where I understand, Hey, having a cool idea is one thing, but how do you monetize and how do you create opportunity and kind of longevity for a brand? Because everything's just so like hype driven now, you know, and that's kind of what my focus is moving forward. For sure, man. You want to give a shout out to general admin? Yeah. So general admission, if you're ever in Venice, come by, we're on the corner of Brooks and Pacific. So kind of the end of Abikini and we always have a cold beer and doors open for anyone. I will be there. A good man. Cool. Thank Thanks, you, brother. Appreciate that. Yeah. That's fun. Rob, top five musical crimes perpetrated by Stevie Wonder in the 80s and 90s go. Sub question. Is it, in fact, unfair to criticize a formerly great artist for his latter-day sins? Is it better to burn out than to fade away? Burn out or fade away. How apropos of everything happening in surfing right now. Uh, this week's top five takes a look at the top five most interesting model releases in competition from Santa Barbara-based Channel Island surfboards with special commentary from Mr. Nathaniel Curran. Now, disclaimer, there have been and continue to be dozens of world-class shapers crafting beautiful boards for the world's best surfers year in and year out. The selection of Channel Islands for this week's top five is definitely due to my own personal familiarity with their product, but more importantly, it has to do with the lengthy history of the company, the size of their team, the variation of the models, and then the willingness of their team riders to utilize these models in competition. Now, for those who don't know, Nathaniel hails from one of the most celebrated surfing families in Ventura County. His older brother, Timmy, was once painted with the hypercharged label of, quote-unquote, the next Kelly Slater, and was instrumental in incorporating aerial surfing into the more complete repertoire of the early 1990s. His older brother, Josh, and his younger brother, Taylor, are both accomplished surfers in their own right, but Nathaniel is a former CT surfer, he's a past U.S. Open winner, and the now founder of the nonprofit cancer treatment program called The Young and the Brave. He continues to be a world-class surfer, and he now also runs the team program at Channel Islands. And Nathaniel's top five favorite model releases from Channel Islands. At number five, he has a double pick, Tom Curran's Red and Black Beauties. Tom rode the Red Beauty to victory at the 1984 OP Pro in Huntington Beach, and he rode the Black Beauty uh, famously to victory at the 1985 Bells Beach event over Mark Ocalupo. At number four, he writes Kelly Slater Momentum Era Board with the Stripes. Now, this board didn't have a name at the time, but it ultimately became known as the Glass Slipper for being so thin and so narrow. At number three, he has the Proton. This was Dane Reynolds' seminal high-performance board, and it came from one of the most impactful surfers of the past decade. At number two, he has Dane's Dumpster Diver that he rode at the 2010 Hurley Pro at Trestles. And at number one, he has the MBM Plus model, which he says he won two six stars and had two fifths in four weeks, which is a pretty good run 
that netted him $60,000 at the time. So that is a good run. That would buy you plenty of wax. Uh, and my own list, for those who are interested, um, at number five, I have the Proton, uh, purely for the Dane Reynolds-Joel Parkinson battle in 2010. It was the Quicksilver Pro Gold Coast quarterfinals, and both of them went nuts. Uh, Dane was tearing on that board. At number four, I have the Wizard Sleeve. Now, Kelly Slater rode this at the 2009 Quicksilver Pro Gold Coast. It was a squatter, wider, unconventional template. Um, he ultimately lost to Julian Wilson in kind of bad waves in round three, and everyone toasted him for it. Um, said he didn't care about the event, that he was just riding funky equipment. And I don't think that they gave the board a fair shake, and subsequently I don't think that Kelly did after that either. Uh, at number three, I have the Dumpster Diver as well. Dane Reynolds rode this uh, to a runner-up finish against McFanning at the, at the 2010 Hurley Pro Trestles. At number two, I have the Deep Six, which is a radically unconventional board for the time that Kelly won the 2008 Billabong Pipe Masters on. Um, it was a quad kind of before the bulk and rank and file were riding quads in those conditions, and it was a shorter, wider, thicker board, and, and he was just dominant on it compared to the field. And at number one, I have the MTFA. Uh, it's 2009. I'm at the Quicksilver Pro France. Uh, it's round three. The conditions are less than inspiring. I think we're at kind of crappy Senos. And it's a pretty ho-hum day. And then Dane Reynolds comes out against Roy Powers on this altered twin fin with a really pulled-in tail and just blitz these little waves that you know. In most of us find ourselves surfing in day in and day out. And it just blew my mind as to how good you can surf a board like that compared to the world's best surfers on their traditional equipment. So, you know, now that I review my list, it's it's pretty interesting to see that that live arena experimentation era with, with varied models really happened over that three-year period between 2008 and 2010. But, um, you know, with that said, we have the most rippable wave in the world coming up next week, and I wonder if we'll see any of the world's best delve into the experimental equipment models uh, for that event. So let's check the horizon. On the horizon, we have the QS6000 Pantene Classic in Galicia. Lanolin, like, like sheep's wool. Galicia, Spain. Uh, and that's underway right now. You can watch that WorldSurfLeague.com. Uh, we also have the Hurley and Swatch Pro at Trestles coming up next week. That is stop number 8 of 11 for the men and stop number 7 of 10 for the women on the 2016 Samsung Galaxy WSL Championship Tour. Uh, it will start September 7th, and uh, there is no shortage of interesting fare from both the men and the women. The forecast looks great. You're not going to want to miss that one. It will be live at WorldSurfLeague.com and the WSL app. Well, that's it, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We continue to change some things around, so hopefully those were improvements. A big thanks to both Damien Farinfort and Nathaniel Curran for contributing. And if you're inclined, please provide any and all feedback to me, either on SoundCloud, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, at Dave Prodan. I'll do my best to engage and continue to improve these in the weeks to come. Uh, thanks again, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. <laughs> <laughs>